Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, thank you guys for joining us, as you do each and every week. Reminder, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Keep up with the show. New guests, what we have coming up in the future, and all the latest news that the Hazard Ground community is a part of. Also, get on our website, hazardground.com. Click on that Amazon banner. Remind you about this partnership with Amazon because it's so easy for you guys to give back to veterans just by doing your Amazon shopping. Again, go to our website, hazardground.com, then click on the Amazon banner. Do all your normal shopping like you always do. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate that back to some of the great charities you hear on the Hazard Ground. And because you guys have done that so much, we've been able to make a couple donations so far. Very proud of that and very thankful that you guys have chosen to do that and be part of the Hazard Ground community. As always, get on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. Doesn't have to be a long one, doesn't have to be a fancy one. Just something short and sweet. Tell us what you love. And make sure you leave a five-star rating as well because, well, you do love the show. Excited for this week's guest as we have another first here on the Hazard Ground. We are having our first former Coast Guard member join us. He was a petty officer in the Coast Guard that did tactical law enforcement, including doing that in Iraq. He then left the Coast Guard to go to the Army, where he retired as an E-5 sergeant, where he was a Black Hawk crew chief. He is Mike Frazier, joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Mike, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. All right. As I said, our first Coast Guard member, so I'm excited to, to find out more about the Coast Guard because there is a military mission for it. And You were one of the few people who got to do it, but I failed to mention in the open that you were part of the 160th SOAR, and the 160th SOAR Special Operations Aviation Regiment has got some of the finest pilots the world has ever seen, and you were part of that throughout your career, so I'm excited to talk to you about all of it. Let's go back to the beginning, because again, with the Coast Guard, it's like we always ask people how you get in the military. Well, now I need to know how you get in the Coast Guard. (laughs) Yeah, it was... um it was uh it was actually pretty tough um i wanted to um i wanted to pay for college i kind of wanted to pay for my own way and uh kind of do my own thing and i didn't want to do stuff that everybody else did i i kind of always had to be different and um so i kind of i looked around and um coast guard was kind of neat so i liked it i wanted to, to travel do something and um it, it was kind of tough to get in there it, it took me a while for the process to even uh, go through for me to get approved and selected to go in. Was there anything in particular about the Coast Guard that you liked? I mean, are, um, are you a swimmer? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I had I had multiple uh, I, I had multiple roles. It was kind of neat. Um, I I went through boot camp, uh, Cape May, New Jersey, and then I immediately went to a small uh, boat in Astoria, Oregon, called the um, the Cowslip. That was the name of the boat. It was a buoy tender. And uh, my job uh, out of school was to be a machinery technician. And on this boat, we did buoys, waterways, and all kinds of stuff. And uh, I was uh, a member of the rescue swimmer team. I was a member of the firefighting team. We did firefighting, uh, shipboard drills. Um, I had to work on the, the machinery and all that stuff. Plus, um, I learned how to do uh, law enforcement boardings and stuff like that. It was At first, it was... Um, kind of like a secondary um, mission. 
All right. So uh, what I know about the Coast Guard is limited to what I saw in the movie The Guardian with uh, Kevin Costner and, and Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> that so, was a good movie. Yeah, I mean, it really was. It's a very good movie. It's one of my favorites. I love it. But, you know, yeah. rescue swimming in and of itself is what I think of. Um, and the Coast Guard is typically called in for hurricane emergencies, you know, floods, things of that nature. That's typically more of the routine mission, correct? Uh, th- correct. However, there are different facets of the Coast Guard that do different things. Um, those guys are rescue swimmers. Those guys are uh, part of the elite of the elite. Those guys don't mess around. They swim like fish. Uh, I mean, those guys can hang with seals. They, they hang with frogmen. Uh, the training is unreal to get into that. Um, the attrition rate is astronomical. But um, uh, those guys those guys are in the aviation. They, they fly around. They, they protect. They pull guys out of the water. They do search and rescue. That's their mission. Um, I was on a boat that did a separate mission from other boats. There's other boats that went around, and um, they broke ice in the North Pacific area. They had uh, cutters that actually went out and did drug busts, and they, they went in and protected the, the waterways down in South America, down uh, Canada. Uh, and then you had guys that did small boat stuff, uh, search and rescue on the coast um, that uh, would go and take these inflatable 47-foot uh, boats, or I'm sorry, aluminum, not inflatable. They would take these aluminum boats, and they'd go and they could roll them, flip them upside down, and they would rewrite themselves back up and those guys, those guys do some gnarly stuff. It's amazing. I, I don't think all of us are really uh, knowledgeable on, on the mission of the Coast Guard and what exactly the, the comprehensiveness of it is. Okay, so you were in the Coast Guard prior to 9-11. Correct. When 9-11 happens, where are you and what does it mean to you on that day? Oh, man, it was, uh, it was iconic. I, I remember it plain as day. Um, I was on the boat, uh, the cow slip. And, uh, and this is outside of Oregon, right? This was just off the coast of Oregon. Okay. We're out doing, uh, we're pulling buoys up out of the water, and the deck guys are cleaning up the buoys, repairing them, making sure they're good to go. And early in the morning, I go out on the mess deck, and I'm sitting there, and the boat's rocking and rolling, and I got seasick. It was horrible. And uh, the uh, the news came on, and it was kind of spotty because we had satellite radio, and it was kind of patchy here and there. And everyone's flipping out, just standing around watching TV. I'm like, man, what's going on? I just woke up and uh, I get me some coffee and we're just bobbing side to side. And we're watching these uh, these planes just smash into the building. And our, we just we stopped. It was just silence. It was eerie. And right there, uh, we knew that things were going to change for us. And immediately after we watched that, um, the commander of the boat, we got a phone call and said, hey, um, we got to go back to port. We got to, we got to reevaluate some things. So we did that. And, uh, from that point on, things really changed for not only us there at that unit, um, for the coast guard completely changed. And well, as you know, the rest of the world completely changed as well. All right. But see the coast guard in nature doesn't have a, or do they have a military tactical mission? Right. I mean, because again, forgive my, my naive, naivete here and, and my misunderstanding of exactly what the Coast Guard does. I, I probably should do more considering I've been in the military for nearly 20 years. But uh, that aside, you, you know, when, I don't ever really, I, I, in both my deployments, I never once heard the term Coast Guard ever being used. And I deployed with SEALs and special ops guys and everything else. And Coast Guard never showed up. 
Yeah, it's um, no, they're they have a very unique skill set. When I first got into the uh, tactical law enforcement, I was on a, a lead at team, it's the law enforcement detachment team. Uh, they only had uh, three of them set up at the time one was in San Diego, one was in Florida, and one just got set up in Virginia. Uh, and our specific purpose was to uh, have small teams, 10 man teams. Um, each each unit had multiple teams, and we'd deploy all over the place and conduct uh, counter narcotics, alien immigration, neo ops, um, enforcing sanctions in different areas. And even when we went over to Iraq in 2003, we were enforcing sanctions, policing waterways, doing all kinds of stuff. And from then, they really grew to uh, growing more of a um, kind of like an elite, um, like a law enforcement. Um, security teams uh, around around the coast, so they they kind of they kind of bumped up their game a little bit. Give me an example of okay. So you deployed to Iraq again, and this is new to the hazard ground, new to everybody here. But you know, what, give me an example of a mission you conducted while in Iraq. When did you get there? First of all, when did you leave? And give me an example of a day of what something you had to do while you were deployed. All right. Well, uh, so we got. We got wind that, uh, hey, pack up your bags. You're getting ready to leave uh, within 24 hours. Uh, we're going somewhere. Uh, we can't really say exactly where, but uh, we're, we're going to be going in the stuff. And we, we all pretty much knew that uh, we were going to be over there in the Gulf somewhere. We just assumed that. So kind of as we progressed and we started heading out, we uh, we get over there and uh, we, we first got into uh, Bahrain. And we started training the uh, the Navy SEAL guys, uh, or not Navy SEALs, what Navy VBSS teams, uh, the guys that kind of did security on boats. Um, we started training them there, and uh, I think there's like two or three weeks. Uh, we went from there to actually uh, the Umkasar area. Mm-hmm. It's the um, you're familiar with that area. It's kind of like the the base waterway into Iraq. Everything, yeah, it's, down it's in Basra, like near near the area down there. Yeah, so okay. that was kind of like the, the waterway that they wanted to uh, – they had kind of like get that set up for uh, a main hub for like the shipments to come in. Right, cargo. it was our port of, of debarkation coming into the country. <laughs> exactly, so it was very important. Um, and uh, so what they wanted us to do, we, we got stuck on a couple different Navy uh, boats, uh, PC boats. I think they were 110-foot uh, Navy PC boats, and uh, those are the boats that the Navy SEALs used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we would um, take those and do big, big circles around the area, around the entrances, up around Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And uh, there were uh, there were checkpoints that we had to do. And uh, from so essentially, boat- I'm sorry to cut you off, just so I understand. Essentially, you're running patrols on the water, just like an infantryman would on the ground through a certain area. You're doing that in a in a small little PC boat, uh, you know, a personnel carrier boat and just going up and down the waterway looking for stuff. Yeah. Okay. Uh, All right. Yep. So we're we're doing that, and once we found something, we obviously couldn't pull up on a big boat, so we got the uh, little uh, inflatable uh, craft, the cricks, uh, you know, because we basically had all the the gear that the seals were using minus the, all the the super cool swoopy stuff uh but we'd go off the the pc boats would get up there and uh there were all these old sunken vessels from the original gulf war so there's like pieces of big giant freighter boats like wow. poking out of the water, um that are rusted and they were known targets for guys to go up there and uh hang out for days at a time 
days on end and uh, they would do uh, sniper positions. So we had to do all these checkpoints every day and go and make sure that they were, we had to climb up in these things. Um, there was like no script, no, no ropes really. I mean, it was kind of like John Wayne kind of type stuff. We had to go up there and check it all out. So every day that was kind of like part of the routine is, is checking that stuff out. Um, and uh, until we got uh, a mission to uh, go check for uh, unexploded ordinances and mines um on the shore they're like there's a spot in the ground everyone's too busy they want us to go look at it we guys go do it our officer said yeah of course and we didn't really have any idea what we were doing we had no training for unexploded ordinances uh you know anything like that do you have an eod guy with you internally or no 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 there was there was nothing actually we got dropped off and uh, some guys came up on this little uh, moped and they started shooting at us. So the Navy boat left us and uh, we were like, oh, what do we do? So we kind of like went back out in the water, swam and hung out for a little bit. Uh, when that went away, we we're calling for air support for something. And they didn't want to. The Navy was like, nope, we uh, we don't want to mess with it right now. It's too weird. Uh, so we're like, OK, they left. So. We had an Apache actually fly above us at that time, and we're like, "Yes, we got some air support." It, it had nothing to do with us; it was just flying over. Oh. <laughs> it, was, it, did a, it did a friendly wave, and then it took off, and we're like, "All, all right, I guess, I guess we just continue on." So, but, um, and it, my it, dumb question: it, Do you guys have yeah. weapons in the Coast Guard? Uh, yeah, we did. I mean, did, were you carrying an M4 or even a pistol and a nine or whatever? Uh, yeah, I had a uh, I had a nine. Uh, everyone was armed. I had my nine millimeter. And uh, I, we had uh, uh, our ARs. Um, okay. A couple of the guys, I think one of the one or two of the guys had uh, shotguns. We had a breechman. Um, we did we did tactical stuff. So you know we were legit. We we uh, in a sense that we were kind of out of our element out there in the desert. But um, we we were we were flat jet. We had our body armor. Um, we were wearing the chocolate chip camis. So oh really? Know, we, going back we, to go, going back to the Gulf War. Yeah, man. You we and were, the Iraqi we were, army wearing the same uniforms. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we went out there, and uh, there was 10 miles. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was about 10 miles of uh, uh, square footage or square mileage that they wanted us to, to to mark down and check out. And there's anti-tank mines out there just kind of hanging out. There's a big 500-pound bomb just unexploded hanging out on the beach. I mean, it was just – it was kind of crazy. And we had one guy with us, man. His name was Jason Wallace. I'll never forget him. This guy was super smart, techie guy. We always made fun of him because he was kind of a nerd. He was one of those guys you'd figure they'd kind of be out LARPing or doing something like that. And uh, I think he really saved our lives because he really knew what was going on and what to look for and what to expect. When you see like a stick in the ground, it was an indicator. Like he was one of those dudes that was really good at Minesweeper. So I think if we didn't have him, we, we probably would have been uh, uh, disintegrated or did something stupid. But we, we got done with it. We, we, we got it. We got it mapped out. We got it checked out. We hopped in our boat and we had to paddle back out to the Navy boat. They didn't want to come get us. <laughs> how much? I know you said you got fired upon a little bit there, but how often did you see enemy contact? Um, while we were there, we didn't see enemy contact close. Um, the crazy stuff was off in the distance. You can see all the fires um, at night being on the boat on the coast, man. You can just see you can see the haze. Um, you can see the tracers. Uh, you can hear the booms. Even underwater when you're sleeping, um, the opening day, man, it was just 
just big booms underwater uh, where you sleep because where you sleep on that boat, you're actually underwater. So it, it resonates pretty good out there. Um, so we didn't actually, luckily, other than that small stuff, we didn't, we didn't see anything. We weren't directly involved with, um, in any big uh, contact. I, I don't, I don't know how we would have handled that ourselves, honestly, but, uh, luckily we didn't. Is there like one memory that stands out from that deployment that always sticks with you? Good, bad, or indifferent? Um, yeah, there, there's, there's a couple of them. Uh, one of them, uh, there's actually a couple of them. One of them, uh, very, very distinctly, uh, we were we were cruising in a couple. We had we had a couple of different uh, of those cricks, the little boats, and uh, we were cruising around from one checkpoint to the other. And they had those flying fish over there. Um, the fish would jump out of the water and they'd kind of like fly. Mm-hmm. While we were cruising along with the little boat, and one of our guys, uh, uh, one of our BM BM one Zim Brian Zim, I'll never forget him either. He uh. He had, uh, he, he was saying something like, ow, and we turned back and looked, and we're like, man, what's going on? And nothing. Well, he did it again, and we're like, man, what's going on? Well, that time, a fish had jumped out of the water and smacked him in the face <laughs> while we were cruising on the boats. No joke. And so we're like, no way. Well, another one jumped in the boat, and it was just like, it was unreal. It was kind of funny. It kind of took the, it kind of took the monotony out of the day, you know, it took a little bit of the stress off. Um, there was another time when uh, Navy Times, we had a photographer from Navy Times. He went out with us, and he's photographer. He was taking pictures of you know some of the stuff we were doing, some of the things we were looking at. And it was really cool. And uh, I got off to one of my checkpoints, and I went to go get the boat and tie it off. And um, I I miscalculated where I stepped, and there was n- there was nothing. So I just I fell straight down. I was wearing my boonie cap. And uh, nothing but the boonie cap was just hanging up out of the water. And I was wearing my body armor and everything. So I had to pull myself back up with the anchor of the boat and everything. And everyone was all laughing at me. But it was, uh, it was, it was pretty funny. So those are, my, those are my big memories. Yeah, I mean, I, I only ask just because, I mean, again, the nature isn't combat-oriented. So it's, it, it's, I'm just trying to grasp the understanding, you know, of, of what you guys did. I mean, I, I'd imagine that cruising up and down the Tigris or the Euphrates – you know, on a daily basis that it would, you know, something would have happened to you. Well, the, um, they had, uh, they had guys that there's uh, oil platforms out there and, um, strategically placed in all these, uh, different locations for these big oil platforms with like shipping containers and everything. Well, they actually had reserve coast guard guys go out there and they were doing security. They, they were staying on there for like months at a time. Really? And, yeah, those guys were manned with 50 cows, 240s, 249s. Those dudes were seeing action. And uh, we were um, taking taking some supplies to to one of the guys one time, checking on them, getting comms, and uh, gathering intel from some of the stuff. And you can see bullet holes, man, just from some of the stuff that as they're cruising by, they're just shooting these things up. And um, it was just unreal. So some of those guys seeing some action, we were we were fortunate enough to not have to see it. At that time, I mean, it was around us. It was all, all around us, but the initial push already started. So when we were there, we kind of just caught that that calm right in between on that on the waterways right there, where we didn't really. I mean, it was saturated with navy and everything else. You'd kind of be dumb to even really try to do anything like that. Right. So no casualties or anything like that. 
we didn't have any casualties. Um, there was a guy, uh, one of the, I think he was one of the only uh, Coast Guard members uh, to uh, be killed in action was uh, Nate Bruckenthal. Um, it was a little bit after I was there. Uh, I actually went to uh, school with him. Uh, I met with him. Didn't know him uh, too great, but he was a really cool guy, really cool acquaintance. Um, we kind of cut it around a little bit and had fun during school, but uh, he he passed away out there from a um, uh, a, a waterbound V-bid. Really, they were they were that complex at that point in time. Yeah, they they were they they were they absolutely were. That's crazy. All right, so how long does that deployment last? Um, that one didn't last too long. I think that one was only like a uh, like a month or two. We, That's we did it. Little, yeah, we uh, we went over there. Our our deployments uh, they didn't last very long because we deployed so much. We would go. Um, <clears throat> we would hand off the deployment to another team that would relieve us. And then we would come back get resituated, train up for a minute, and then we'd head back out again. So, um, it, it was, it was kind of a smooth process at the time, which made the coast guard kind of enjoyable in that aspect. Cause when I went over there with the army, my first big deployment with the regular army, man, it was, you were months, you know, a 12 month deployment yeah. at, at yeah. least. Okay, all right. So, um, what year is that that you finish up that deployment? Oh four, right? Uh, that was uh, two thousand and three. Okay, two thousand and three. You're out of the yeah. Coast Guard by two thousand four, correct? Correct. Why? Um, I did four years because uh, I wanted to go to school. Actually, uh, I had just gotten uh, married right before I deployed in two thousand and three, and. Actually, we were talking about getting married, and uh, it didn't work out because they said, hey, you know, you can't do that because you're getting ready to go overseas. So we postponed that. But um, I wanted to go to school, went to school uh, for a little bit and found out that I, I just I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't afford to go to school. I had to pay uh, out of pocket, plus use my GI Bill, and I had no time for anything, and uh, it, just, it wasn't working out for me. Okay, um, so you get out. Do you think you're done with the military at this point in time? I thought I was done. Yeah, absolutely. What ter- what turns around and changes your course of, of of what you're doing in your life? Well, I get uh, I get I I, I stop going to school because I realize that it's not going to work out. I, I went to school for a motorcycle mechanics institute. My dream was to be a, a motorcycle mechanic on the pro motocross circuit. And uh, travel around with these guys and work on professional bikes while they're, you know, doing supercross, doing all that stuff. And I I realized uh, that was a a far sketch dream. And being a mechanic at a regular shop isn't going to pay the bills that we needed, um, you know, for a a fresh for a fresh family. So I left that. We moved back up to Oregon and um, I got a job there. And it's kind of the same thing. I I really missed it. I, I was I was struggling with a lot of stuff. And I think that was a big point where um a lot of my depression kind of started to kick in for me and I really started missing um, the deployments and moving and the up tempo. And uh, I didn't have a purpose or direction really. I had a job, but it, it wasn't it. Um, wound up finding out I was going to be a father and I, I needed to do something else. So the army was uh, the next move. All right. So we're in two wars at this point in time and obviously you know the nature of it, but um, you're married and you're about to be a father. Does, is, is there any, sort of talk of not doing this by your wife or your family? Um, no, they were, um, 
my ex-wife at the time, um, her father was a uh, uh, MP in the military. He was, they were, she was an army brat. They were army brats. Okay. Uh, so they traveled around. They understood what it was like. Um, they, uh, they blessed it. You know, everyone was cool with, they, they understood the schedule moving every couple of years and how everything flowed. And, um, it just kind of, it kind of, it kind of stuck. It made sense. I, uh, I originally wanted to go in as 11 Bravo. I wanted to do the Ranger thing. I wanted to go the Green Beret route. Um, that didn't work out. He didn't want to give me, the recruiter didn't want to give me, uh, that job. So I was getting ready to leave. And, uh, I looked up at the wall. I was walking out and I seen a helicopter poster and I said, Hey, and that'd be a pretty good job I could do if I got out. So I said, if you can get me that job, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. So he made a phone call right there. He said, okay, you got it. Wow. All right. Yeah. Um, so you left the Coast Guard as an E4 petty officer. When you entered Correct. the Army, do you get to go in at the same rank, or did you have, because of you know translation or transition or whatever, did you lose any rank? Um, I got to keep my rank uh, because of the, the time. Uh, it had been like less than a couple of years. Um, so I had to do, um, uh, like a mini boot camps, like a yeah. warrior transition yep. course is what they call it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did that and I got to keep my, uh, my rank. All right. You get into the yeah. army. It is what year now? Uh, 2000 and I want to say seven, I think is 2007. All right. And the only reason I asked that is because obviously, you know, <laughs> That's the surge. I mean, there's 140, 150,000, 160,000 even, you know, troops in Iraq at this point in time. Yeah. How quickly from when you get back in, do you get back overseas? Uh, it was uh, hardly any time at all. I, I, I did the the Warrior Transition course. I went to AIT in uh, Fort Eustis, Virginia. I think that was like 10 to 12 weeks long. I immediately had to go back, grab the family, all of our stuff, moved to Savannah. Uh, I was with uh, stationed with uh, Third ID and uh -huh. uh, Under Army Airfield there in Savannah, and uh, I was with a maintenance company, so they were already deployed. Um, I think like a month or two. So I, I went over there. I think I was there for like a like almost a month, and then I shipped right out. Wow, where are you going when you when you get back to Iraq? Um. We were stationed uh, right off of the other side of uh, uh, Baghdad by uh, Baghdad International okay. Airport. Yeah, uh, Striker. I think that's what it was. Yeah. That's where we stayed at. Very familiar with it. Okay. Um, yeah. And at this point in time, you're just in a regular aviation unit, correct? Yeah, I'm doing uh, maintenance. So I'm 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 doing uh, just the working on the helicopters. I'm a wrench. I'm, I just I'm not flying. I'm not going outside the wire. Not doing anything. What is that first deployment like that's not in the Coast Guard and how much of a culture shock is it? Uh, it was kind of surreal. It was it was really uh, depressing, demoralizing. Um, <laughs> We've been there. We've know, all been there. <laughs> yeah, you can't go anywhere. Uh, we first stayed there. I think we, we were staying in tents. Um, I think we were like five to ten people to a tent. And uh, it was just hot. It was miserable. Um you know, as you know, everyone kind of knows that that scenario, uh, the cool saving grace for that was, I think, to help me. My little brother was there. He was in the army. He was a generator mechanic. And oh, wow. He was, yeah, he was stationed in Liberty and he was walking right distance. Yeah, he was he was uh, he was at Liberty. So he was on the other side of the airfield where I was at. That's amazing. So, uh, I got that. I got to actually hang out with him a couple times. He, his unit was getting ready to rip back to head back home and we just showed up there. So we got to kind of actually hang out a little bit and 
and talk and chill out. It was cool. That's pretty good. All right. So how, how long were you yeah. there for your first deployment? Oh, my first deployment, I think we were there for, uh, I think they were there for like 12 to 15 months. I, I wound up being there for 12 months. And that whole experience, um, you know, you're just doing helicopter maintenance and things of that nature, but did you feel like you had made the right decision to get back in? Yeah, I, it, I, I knew it was, uh, I, I knew where I was wanting to go and right, um, the last, uh, I'd probably say four or five months, I actually got picked up to go to a, a flight, um, a flight uh, company. So I, I started learning how to become a crew chief, uh, shooting the 240, uh, doing the crew coordination stuff on the, on the helicopters. We were the morning express. So we were kind of like, uh, transporting the sergeant major around, uh, dropping muffins and rivets to everybody. That was, that was kind of our thing, but, um, it got me outside of the wire. And, uh, that's kind of, uh, yeah, that made it cool cruising around with the uh, MVG, seeing all the rockets flying around. We weren't really directly, uh, affected by anything, but you could see it all going down. Wow. All right. Yeah. So that deployment ends, you get back home and then what happens next? Uh, I get back home. Uh, I found out my neighbor in the apartment uh, complex that I lived at, he was, uh, um, he was a maintainer for uh, Chinooks in uh, the 160th. And it was just right across the flight line from where we were at. It was the dark side is what we called it. Uh, and he said, Hey man, you gotta, you gotta come over. Um, you gotta come to the dark side. I said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. So he said, I'm gonna, I know some guys, I know some, uh, black hog dudes. I'll get a hold of them and they'll get a, they'll get a hold of you. So I said, All right, cool. They got a hold of me and did an interview. Just two dudes came over and chilled out with me. They asked me some questions, said, all right, we'll get back to you. So I think like another week or so later, they said, pack up your bags, get ready to rock and roll because uh, you're going to go to a green platoon. Did you know what that meant? Uh, yeah, I kind of was doing some research. I was doing some study and uh, that green platoon was a selection course for the, the 160th. Okay. And what's that like? Uh, that was awesome it was awesome it was tough it was brutal uh it was excruciating long days longer nights uh no lot of core training lots of rad stuff um but um it was as as, as immediately when i started it i knew that that's where i needed to be any fear that you wouldn't get through the assessment selection process yeah absolutely uh i think uh, this probably goes through a lot of people's minds when they're going through training. You never want to get recycled. You never want to get stuck and have to go back through all that stuff again. Um, it kind of sticks with you. But uh, there was a couple times where uh, it was pretty rough. Um, I I kind of twisted my ankle and my wrist doing some burpees with a rucksack and and doing some things. But um, I I just I just stretched through. It was uh, it was I, I loved it. It, it was fun. When do you find out if you're accepted? Um, I guess just once I completed it, uh, you know, they, they go through. Uh, it's, it's not quite as tough as the uh, Green Beret selection, I, I think. Um, I, I don't think it's quite as long. It's obviously not quite as long. Um, there's some peer evaluation stuff that goes on. There's some uh, – uh, psych evaluation stuff that goes on and you have to have your affairs in order and you kind of have to know what's going on. Um, but, uh, once I completed everything, passed all the tests, 
Um, we made it through uh, Hell Week, Zero Day, all that stuff, uh, kind of getting through that. Once you get through that initial first day, just getting to the next day, and then the next day, you you know you're going to make it. When you're finally on the dark side and you you know you go behind the curtain, so to speak, what was your first impression? Uh, my first impression was this is super awesome. It's really laid back. Um, the atmosphere um, is completely different. Uh, the the people are uh, they're not so micromanaging. I guess it's kind of more of a big boy program yep. there on that side. Uh, I had to spend a little bit of time in maintenance uh, working on the helicopters there before I actually got into uh, being a crew chief for the 160th. I think there was like a few months where I, I just kind of learned the, the lay of the land, how everything was. Um, actually, unfortunately, I had to do a funeral service when I first got there, and uh, that was that was pretty rough. Did you know the person or no? Oh, I, I didn't know the person at all, and um, it was just a, a guy going through a hard time. And uh, that was one of the one of the big key things that kind of led me to uh, one of my paths where I'm at in life right now. So was I mean, was it suicide or? Yeah, it was a suicide. And uh, the guy, uh, he took himself out in his house in front of his little girl and his mom. Oh, Jesus. And, uh, yeah, it was it was really rough. And uh, I had a lot of emotions. I was super mad. I was, I, I felt so aggravated that, you know, this guy, what was he thinking? You know, how could he do something like this? You know, he's just affecting so many people. And it just, it just, I lost respect for people that were going through. I, I had no compassion for that at the time. And um, it, it really, really put a, a heart in my heart in a way, I guess, for that. And um, I, I didn't understand it at the time, but um, I, I I, I would come to find out eventually exactly where he almost pretty much where he was at. All right. Put that on hold. I, I do want to get back to that for a moment. Um, let, let's yeah. get through your experiences with the 160th. I mean, at what point in time do you realize, damn, I mean, I'm in, I'm with the best of the best right now. Oh, um, I guess it wasn't until I actually start to uh, start to fly. I had one of the, some of the crew guys come over and say, Hey man, we heard you got some hours. Uh, we need we need some we need some crew chiefs. So I said, yeah, man, I, that's that's where I want to be. They were warning me. They're like, man, it's it's completely different over here. You're gone a lot. It's busy. The up tempo is crazy. He goes, you don't really get any downtime. I said, well, that's that's why I'm here. So um, I got set up, started doing training, uh, doing over water stuff. Um, and these guys just they demanded perfection with everything. You had to have a plan for a plan for a plan. You had to understand how the helicopter's working. Uh, you had to do your your job as a crew chief. You had to watch the, the controls. You had to um, check for fuel, temperatures, TGTs, limitations. Um, you have to do air crew surveillance. You have to keep track of the guys in the back, all the gear, uh, your weapons. Um, so it was just constant moving. And on top of that, you had to plan missions. You had to get stuff set up. So it was just, man, it was just nonstop go, go, go. And, um, the pilots were the best in the world. We got to do some real training. Um, I mean, the, the training was just outstanding, unreal planning. I, I got to see the best customers uh, in the world, uh, SEALs, uh, Green Berets, other dudes. And these guys are just top notch. They don't mess around, but they're just they're so humble. They're polite. They communicate well. The planning uh, just 
that's just where I, I loved it. All right. Um, can you describe the difference between a pilot in the Coast Guard and a pilot in the 160th? How do you know one's better than the other? Um, you really don't, but there's, there's a different uh, mission set, um, completely different. Um, guys and uh, pilots, and I've never flown any Coast Guard uh helicopters other than uh doing some fast roping kind of type stuff uh when i was with the law enforcement detachment team um so my my flying around in helicopters in the coast guard is extremely limited but okay well then just take it just take a regular army like blackhawk pilot okay okay uh regular army um the mission set is different these these guys uh the pilots are um they're probably about three to four more steps ahead of the game um, there's more, there's more planning and there's more things at stake and there's more moving pieces. Um, when we flew, we flew with joint operations. So it wasn't usually just us. There was air force involved. Um, there were other helicopters, there were other airplanes. Um, there's, uh, elevation involved. There's other people, there's guys on the ground that are involved. So there, there's a lot more moving pieces and a lot more things at stake. Um, and timing is an absolute factor. So when you go on missions with these guys, um, what's the how's the experience different for you? Um, just being a part of that in itself was completely different for me because um, I got to be in all the crew uh, the crew briefs, all the crew missions. Um, I got to I had to, I had to talk with the, the teams in the back that we were transporting. I had to know what was going on because. I needed to know, you know, are these guys fast roping? What are they going to be roping out of? Are they going to be, you know, doing boats? Um, You know, what kind of weapons are you guys going to be carrying around? What do we need to know uh, when we get on the ground? uh, What am I, you know, focus of fire going to be with a minigun checking out? Do I need to make sure that I'm clear on the left side? Are the guys going to be roping out of one side and then jumping out of the other side? Sometimes we'd have to plan for putting one wheel to the side of a building and have the guys get out, um, put the whole helicopter on top of a building, have them jump out. Uh, it, it depended, but that type of, uh, environment and up tempo was just completely, uh, different than the regular army. You didn't do anything like that in the regular army. When do you deploy with these guys? Um, my first deployment I think was 2000 and, I want to say 2011. I think it was just shortly within the year that I, I got there. Okay. My, and my it's to Iraq or? Yes, it was uh, Iraq. All right. We, so we, we, were, we were there the same time because we were there for the closeout. So 2011 is okay. when, it all, when it all ended. <laughs> yeah, it shifted from uh, uh, whatever, you know, whatever it was to uh, the, the New Dawn. Right, from Operation Iraqi Freedom, Freedom to Operation New Dawn. Yeah, and yeah. and New Dawn was hurry up and get the hell out of here. It was it was we showed <laughs> yeah, we showed up to leave, which was rather annoying for people on the ground. Um, but oh, exactly, I, I mean, you know, just me being there, I know there wasn't much. I, I, let me rephrase that: for the regular army, there wasn't much operational tempo because at that point in time, we weren't in a uh, offensive posture even though special operations still had their own targeting and stuff that they were going on. So I assume still you guys are pretty busy at that point. Yeah, we did because what was happening is uh, there was, there was a handoff. So the big green was leaving and they were basically, you know, like 
uh, like like with any type of operation we're leaving, we we want to leave these people in good hands. We want to make sure that they understand what's going on. Um, uh, every pretty much at that point, every every mission that we went on at that point, we had to have a host nation guy with us. Um, on a mission, no, no matter what we did, and, and a lot less team guys. It was going from more team dudes to less team dudes and more the national guys. That way they can really – their focus was to really let them be more in charge and uh, understand more of the mission aspect of what was going on. So I, I really think that that's what they were trying to do. Yeah, uh, political commentary aside, uh, that, uh, that obviously didn't stick. You know, that's just you know, neither here nor there, Mike. <laughs> no, as we both know, <laughs> that was very that was very frustrating. It, it didn't, but uh, that that's that's what we had to do. That was the mission. All right. So, uh, what sticks with you with that deployment? Anything stand out? Um, a lot stood out. Um, I, I learned. Uh, I learned a lot. Um, there was a lot of a demand on me, even just being a new, uh, basic mission qualified guy. That's, 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 that's what I was, um, a new guy. There's so much, there's so much that you had to know and understand and do and be able to accomplish and, um, kind of do in flights and on the go. And you can't really do that without actually having time doing it and being comfortable in that environment on the constant go, um, the constant uh, mission sets and understanding what goes where, when, when it goes, how it goes, who it goes with. Um, so just that that first uh, mission was just really just a big surreal. Uh, wow, this is happening. I'm learning a lot, and I had to I had to keep my my nose in the books. I had to do a lot of I was doing a lot of studying, a lot of understanding, um, and uh, just a lot of growing. Um, as a young leader. And for those listening who aren't military, I mean, the nature of what special operations does, in particular the 160th, every every mission is dangerous. There's a certain amount of danger in every single thing that you guys do just because um, of, you know, the mission set and, and what's required. Uh, any casualties on that deployment? Um, not not for us um, and uh, not for the first one. I I, I do believe we we've had to uh, uh, like Kazavak out some uh, the enemies uh, kill EKIAs. We had to uh, bring some of them out, but um, the the actual uh, for for us we didn't have anything to to, to really uh, be too concerned with or, or have to worry too much about. We we seen some stuff. We got into some hairy situations, but thankfully we, we didn't have to. Uh, uh, we all came home. How how hairy are you talking? Uh, well, f- for me, coming from what I did, a- absolutely, Harry. Uh, the next mission, though, um, at everyone had had a calm, cool demeanor, and uh, you know, after after mission, you get done, you clean up the helicopter, you take off your gear, uh, the lights starting to come out. We did all of our stuff at nighttime, and uh, the guys just, you know, they're just whistling, walking around, drinking, you know, Diet Pepsi, going back to the hutch, uh, getting ready to get some shut eye, and you know, at first, you're just kind of like, whoa, what's this is crazy, you know, but it's, it's, it's calm, cool and collective. Cause uh, that's, that's what they do day in and day out every day. Did the nature of the work ever start to bother you? Um, the first deployment, it didn't, um, it, it wasn't until, uh, my, my second deployment that, that I did that, um, things really kind of started to catch up on, 
on me. Right, and, well, um, fast forward to that. Tell me about it. Okay. Well, um, there had been, uh, some, uh, some casualties from, uh, um, from training. Uh, we, we had lost a guy actually doing uh, training cause we pretty much train. We're, our motto is to train as we fight. Um, so we go a hundred miles per hour, um, training to get real life, uh, combat, as, as close to combat as possible. So you, you got to have stress and, you know, you got to be able to have stressful environments. So we wound up losing, uh, one of our, uh, crew chiefs. He was actually our boss. He was a new boss. We wound up losing him. Uh, that was pretty tough. Um, another, uh, deployment, the second deployment that I came back from, uh, one of the guys, uh, he, uh, he passed away. He, he actually got killed, um, a couple days after we got back from deployment, that was pretty tough. And then, uh, we had lost a, uh, Chinook from our, uh, uh, our battalion and lost some, lost some souls on that one. And that was, uh, that was, that was really tough for me to go back into that with, with all of that in mind and with the current state of, uh, you know, our, our mission set. What made it so tough though? Um, it just really at the, at that time, it was just really making me, uh, more concerned with, you know, why are we there? Uh, we're doing big missions and we're rolling around getting ready to do big stuff. Um, and, uh, doing some big key moves over there. And, um, the, uh, the, the host national guys, they're in the, the helicopters taking pictures and doing stuff. And, uh, uh, we're working with some uh, some some top tier guys, and I, I I lost it on him. And I this guy was just this one guy was just a, a massive, just big dude. And I thought he was gonna just break my neck, but I told him like, hey, I kicked him out of the helicopter. He's in there like snapping pictures of everything in the cockpit. And I'm like, dude. And I went and talked to the sergeant major um, over there for the uh, for the D boys, and he went over there and, and rectified the situation. We didn't see him anymore, but. Stuff like that, it kind of makes you think, you know, why, why are we out here? Why are we doing it? And it makes things kind of, it kind of makes things more surreal, um, you know, when you hear about losing guys. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it affects everybody differently. Um, some people have the ability to compartmentalize it and realize that, uh, you know, not to be callous, but, you know, the old, if you're going to make an omelet, you got to break eggs kind of deal. This is the nature of the work that we do. And other people exactly. have a lot more human side to it, which, you know, I, I get them both. I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong. Um, yes. But, you know, when you're going into this line of work with a heavy heart or a clouded mind, it, it makes it 10 times tougher, doesn't it? Uh, it does, uh, to an extent. Um, I, I guess uh, maybe I've, I've heard other people say that they're they are able to do the same thing. But um, when you kid up, and when the blade starts turning, uh, we say, you know, uh, clear hot and number one engine and things start rolling. Um, you hit that light switch and you turn everything off and you go. And there was one, there was one mission in particular that, that really I didn't realize it at the time, but um, we wound up bringing back some guys. Um, they were killed in action. And uh, it was a combination of uh, some good and bad dudes, some host national guys and uh they just tossed a bunch of body bags in the helicopter chalk i think i was a chalk one or chalk two and uh they threw them up there and depending on who they were they needed to be dropped off at different locations well they just kind of threw them up there so 
in the back with all the doors open. We're, we're, we're headed back home and I have to identify these guys, uh, you know, in flight, open up the body bags. And that was, uh, now what they got, they got pretty gruesome pretty quick. Uh, actually <laughs> we had to clean up the helicopter quite a bit. I had to toss some uniforms and, uh, that, that one kind of, that one kind of messed me up. Was it because of just, Hey, I'm staring at a dead body or was it because there was a connection to any of these guys or was it because it just seemed all too routine and matter of fact for people? Um, it was a combination of like, you know, all right, you know, we're, we're going out there, we're going to lose some guys. We get it. Um, it, it, it was kind of like a routine deal. Uh, I, I understood where I stood with, you know, combat and people dying and passing away and, and all that stuff. Uh, I guess that wasn't really it. What it was is the, um, actually putting my eyes on, on the dead bodies, on opening up the body bags and, you know, seeing the, the heads, you know, kind of blown apart. There's brain matter, there's blood, there's organs, there, there's stuff. I mean, that stuff's swirling around. It gets all over my face. It's in my mouth. It's in my eyes. Um, it, it, it puts a different dynamic, uh, to it when you start, uh, when you start seeing super gruesome stuff, you know, it's kind of like the first time you see a dead body, it completely changes you. Um, I think it was kind of like that, but it was magnified because, uh, you know, I got some other person's, you know, uh, brain matter and juice all over me. It's, it's kind of disgusting. Um, and you know, that it really sticks with you. Why do you think that sticks with you versus not somebody else? Is it just your personal feelings on everything? Or, I mean, you know, I understand what I'm asking you, like you saw other guys be able to handle it differently. Did that ever bother you? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think, uh, like I was saying, I think it was just because I was so, there was an intimate time where I was like so close to them. I saw their part of their faces, you know, I, I seen it, we're headed back. Um, you know, even, even, even though they were bad guys, you know, I, I didn't, my, my heart wasn't broken because of, you know, how these guys passed away, they're, they're dead, you know, um, as part of the job, that wasn't it. I guess it was just the, the simple fact that, you know, these guys are gone and, you know, their, their stuff is on, you know, their brain matters and it was on my uniform and their blood's all over me. It's, that's, it's different than uh, actually just watching it, you know, cause I've seen it, you see the action, you see the bullets flying, you see stuff, but when it becomes more intimate like that, that's when those uh, vivid graphic things, I think have more of an impact. Um, just, just because of it's, it's more intimate. Do those pictures still stay with you mentally? Can you still see them? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How much does that still bother you? Um, it doesn't really, it doesn't really bother me as much. Um, I, I recognize it now and I see it. Um, I've, I've, uh, I, I actually had some more compound things after getting out of the military, uh, that kind of made things, uh, exponentially worse for me. Um, so going back through and chronologically kind of like, uh, replaying everything and kind of revisiting everything. It allows me to go back to it. And, uh, I guess you could say kind of touch the dragon on it. Right. And it's, it's still there. It's still not pleasant. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't haunt me. 
Let's go back and grab some of that connective tissue from that first um, suicide that you had to preside over, that first funeral duty that you had. Uh When does all that connect to what's happening while you're deployed? Um, It didn't really. Or does it happen when you get back? It didn't happen until actually I got out okay. and I really, I, I started really getting into depression. That's, that's when that clicked for me. And, um, uh, I guess in, in a, in a weird way that, that, uh, that actually kind of allowed me to recognize the state that I was in, that it, it wasn't healthy, it wasn't good. And I needed to do something fast. Why did you get out? Uh, actually, um, I got medically, you got retired. medically retired. Okay. What I happened? Did. Uh, we, uh, did a training mission in, uh, down in Columbia. And, uh, when we Columbia, the country, we, not South Carolina, correct? Yeah, correct, correct, okay. correct, just, correct. Well, cause you said you're at Fort Stewart. It's right. It's right nearby. So, you know, I just wanted to <laughs> yeah. clarify for the listening audience. You met the country, not, you know, the city in South Carolina. I, I get you. Um, we did a training mission and, uh, every time we go, uh, do something. We, we move in and out of country. Uh, we take our helicopters with us. Uh, those are our toys. It's our responsibility. So we, we fold the helicopters. Uh, we get a team. Uh, we're actually, that's part of our, we have a time, it's timed for us. So we have to fold the, the main rotors, uh, the, the blades. We have to fold those back. We have to fold the tail rotor. We have to adjust the struts, uh, get stuff set up, remove the fuel probe, do some things. Uh, and, uh, put the helicopters one or two and whatever gear, whatever in a C-17, C-5, whatever aircraft that we get and we go down. Well, in doing so, you uh, the blades are pretty heavy and the, the way we do it, there's no crane or anything like that. So there's a blade pole and uh, we just got doing an aerial, uh, uh, like a gunnery kind of type thing where we're shooting and we shoot the mini guns. There's a, a lot of uh, 7.62 that goes in the cans, mm-hmm. uh, constantly loading those up, shuffling those in and out of the helicopters. Um, I think just the high tempo, uh, just my lack of sleep, the stress, the anxiety, everything was just compacting and compiling on me. And uh, it just my back gave out. And uh, I, I was I was kind of struggling with it for about a month or two after we got back in. Um, I found out that I got, I had about three bulge disc and, um, my uh, lower vertebrae was, uh, is broken. I don't have that back fin on my vertebrae anymore. And, uh, they immediately told me like, well, if your back's bad, then we're just going to have to ship you out. And, uh, that, that just, that crushed me. So the fact that you couldn't do it anymore really sent you in a downward spiral. Yeah. I had to go through the med board program. Uh, that whole process It was about a year and I, I couldn't fly couldn't even really do any PT. I had to do physical therapy for uh, quite a while to be able to walk right again and um, be able to stand up. Uh, I couldn't pick up my son for a little bit. My back was, it it was, it was dumb. It was rough. Did you feel a a disconnection because you couldn't do what they did? Oh, I I did. And uh, in, in that, in that community, um, you know, they eat their own. Um, you, you either, you're either in or you're out. And right. if you can't, if you can't do the job, you just got to get out of the way. That way other people can do it. I mean, it's not because that they don't feel sorry for you or they're, they're the brothers. It's not that they don't like you. Um, you know, I, I couldn't do it and it crushed me because I worked so hard to get to that point. And, um, 
I was just coming to a point where I was realizing, you know, I, I got to put more effort in, you know, I still got to do some more learning. Um, I still got to do some more training and I had, you know, aspirations to go further and do different things. And, um, it just, uh, it didn't work out for me. And I, I started to resent that and, uh, having the disconnection, um, that, that started a horrible process for me and, uh, the communication and the, the stuff with, um, the medical facility and my unit, um, it didn't go well with me. So the process wasn't fun for me, I guess it probably isn't for anybody, but, um, it, I took it extremely hard. How much did that, you know, connect with all the bad things that you saw and that you did. And, you know, again, circling back to that suicide you saw earlier on, how does that all kind of just manifest itself into this, this bad boiling problem for you? Um, that really started to compound almost immediately, uh, especially when they, they were putting me on medication uh, to sleep. I was getting to a point where I couldn't sleep. Um, I, I needed I couldn't think right. I was so anxious. Uh, so they put me on medication to sleep. They put me on medication for anxiety. Um, so I was just kind of a, a walking uh, medicine cabinet and all of that stuff. I was, I was kind of learning how to recognize certain things, uh, stresses in my life, the things that I've been through, even my childhood, I had a pretty rough childhood. And, uh, I realized that that was kind of starting to, uh, it was all compounding and it was all coming to a crashing halt. Who were you angry at at this point in time? Um, I was angry at myself. I, I felt that I had I, I'd failed that I felt that I'd failed. I, I let other people down um, that uh, I allowed myself to uh, get to a point where I let stress uh, deteriorate my body. Um, I, um, I, I just didn't know what to do with it. I, I didn't know that uh, talking about stuff uh, was, was good. I felt that being vulnerable would, would have set me out because I worked so hard Um Pride is a huge factor in this for an alpha male and um, open and being able to be vulnerable is not something we're really trained to do. And if you have issues or problems, you don't want to talk about it because you don't want to get grounded. Um, being in aviation, you can't you can't really take medication. You can't really take pills. It's very limited on what you can do and can't do um, before it'll ground you. And if you can't fly in that unit, you're done. You just got to get out. How does all of this start to get resolved for you? Um, it's, doesn't really start to get resolved for me until, um, probably about, uh, three, three to four years later. Um, my life really kind of, I lost purpose. I lost direction and I didn't really realize it all, all at those times. I was trying to search and find something I couldn't fly. Um, I got my airframe and power plant license when I got out. Uh, I actually worked in Sweden for a little while with Sikorsky on a program. The military bought some helicopters. Uh, so I was um, one of the team members that kind of helped train the Swedish uh, guys in the military to, to work on those uh, new Mike model helicopters. And uh, it didn't work out for me. Um, I was just searching and I was searching for just answers or something to fill the void that just it wasn't there. And it, I just spiraled. I kind of turned into a zombie, I guess, is is what I could say. And it uh, really had an impact on me, my family, my friends. I secluded myself. Um, I wound up uh, getting a divorce. Uh, I lost my mind. Um, and uh, I kind of kind of let things spiral out of control. When you say lost your mind, I mean, I, I'm not being 
you know, playful or, or callous, but I mean, was that like a diagnosis or you just, you know, are saying that tongue in cheek? Um, I guess it's more tongue in cheek kind of type thing. Okay. I, I was, uh, I was riddled with uh, a lot of emotions that I wasn't equipped to uh, right. deal with. So how do you, um, how do you little... learn to get equipped with them? Um, well, um, I, uh, I had to eat some humble pie. Honestly, um, I had to be able to accept that I wasn't right, and I needed to uh, ask for help. And uh, at, at that time, I was just on a downward spiral of just man, just so many, so many things uh, just compounded one after the next and after the next, and not having a clear mind and not being able to come at things with peace and peace and proper understanding just um it really doesn't allow you to to think on a, on an even plane and um what happened was uh, i i was really definitely afraid of going to the va or getting on medication but i had to so i went to the va i said hey man i really need some help um they wound up uh getting me set up with this doctor there here at the white city va uh meeting up with a uh a psych doctor, absolutely uh, amazing lady. And we built a, a relationship over time. Uh, Dr. Mack is just phenomenal. I, I didn't really think that I would like being able to talk and open up, but this particular uh, person really allowed um, growth and able was able to somehow kind of relate to me in just enough of a way for me to open up and, um, you know, expose myself and be able to recognize, all right, you know, these are some issues. They put me on some medication and, and they found out that the medication that the army put me on was like the maximum dose of SSRIs that you can actually be on. So it was, it was like, it really literally felt like I had like electrical shocks in the back part of my brain while I was walking around. Wow. And uh, it was it was it was absolutely crazy. It was affecting uh, a lot of functions in, in my life, my daily life, and just being on medication. I I hated it. Absolutely, I didn't like it. Any thoughts of suicide? Um, it was close. Uh, I got to a point where um, I, I couldn't think right. Um, I I'd lost uh, pretty much everything in in my life just because I, I couldn't function. I was a mess. I lost my job. Um, I was losing my house. Uh, I, I wound up uh, finding out more information that just compounded me. I, I wound up passing out in the middle of the road, and my dog woke me up, licking me. And um, I, I realized at that point where that guy was that committed suicide. That's where this comes into play. I realized exactly where he was at. Um, just the smallest things, man. Just It's like a domino effect. And they're all the size of Legos. And, um, you know, if, if you have a clear mind, if you're normal, thinking about it now, none of those things would affect me. But they become so big, um, they're, they're roadblocks. It's just roadblock after roadblock, and it's just all your hope, all your joy, everything is just gone. And I woke up. I wound up walking to this little camper trailer that I was staying in. I, I gave all my weapons, all my guns, everything to my friend. I said, please hold on to these for a little while. I, I don't know where I'm at. I don't know what I'm doing, but I, I know I can't have these in my life right now. And I got to figure something out. It's, it's the, incredibly, <laughs> incredibly astute. And just, you know, like the self-awareness it took to do that is unreal. 
I, I've never been there. It was so, it was dark. I had no feeling. And honestly, I, I felt worse. I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, what do I do now? Like I didn't, I felt so horrible about myself and the things that I've done in my life to that point and failing and failure and just all of that dumb stuff. I, I, I felt like I wasn't good enough to even off myself. I didn't want my family members or friends to even have to worry about me because I know, I know that the effect that that had. So I didn't, I didn't want that. What I would have done is just, just disappeared. That was my intent. That's what I was thinking. I just need to go and hide out underneath a rock um, and just not have people worry about me. That's what I was going to do. And I realized I, I, I can't, I can't do that. And I had my son and um, you know, I, I had my mom, I just lost my, my father a couple years back and uh, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't go through with that. I, I knew I needed to, to get help. How did you end up getting help? What, what sort of help did you find? Well, honestly, um, right there, I just prayed when I woke up, uh, after crying and giving my, all my weapons, I, I, I prayed, I was in a, just a puddle of tears and I, I prayed out to God that asked him to help me and to, uh, be in my life that, um, you know, over time helped with me being able to have the confidence to go talk to the doctor at the VA again, um, get more squared away, get more, um, get more insight about what really was going on, what I need to change and do. And so kind of another round of talking with the doc with that, I got on medication for a little bit to kind of help um, restabilize myself because I, I couldn't think I was so anxiety ridden. I couldn't sleep. It was just, it was horrible. Um, but I only had to be on that stuff for a few months. It wasn't too long and I was able to be normal. Um, I was able to wean myself off that. And, um, I got to a point where I really started to want to live for all those people that, um, I knew that had lost their lives, that I was kind of doing them a disservice by not enjoying life. Cause I knew that if, uh, I got to a point where I was about to lose life and I had to have that conversation with God, I'd be like, you know what, if I had another chance, I would go live it to the fullest. And um, that's kind of a respect thing that I felt that I had to do for uh, those guys, those brothers and sisters that was lost. Um, so I, I, I knew that I needed to pick up my stuff and, and I keep moving. Where are you today with everything? Uh, <laughs> my life is uh, amazing. I got a great relationship with my son. Um, I get to see him quite a bit. He lives with his mom in Astoria. We actually have uh, a really good relationship. Um, I had gotten remarried. Uh, my life is great. We just bought a house. Um, my life, uh, I, I owe everything to God. I owe everything to my friends. I owe everything to um, just being able to be vulnerable and be aware of, uh, you know, those things that happen and to not compartmentalize and throw them on my back, uh, but to deal with them and talk about them in real time. Because uh, that's that was one of my key issues is I always used to just have problems and then I'd throw them on my back and I'd worry about it later. Well, uh, my prayer would be, you know, God to uh, give me broad shoulders so I can carry the weight of the world. And uh, I prayed that. And honestly, that's what I got at, at the weight of the world just crushed me. And uh, I don't pray for that anymore. I don't want that anymore. So <laughs> I uh, I'm, I'm good. I deal with things as I go. Um, you know, I, I try to live one day at a time and, um, I'm really working on helping veterans right now. 
Um, I'm working on writing a, a book about uh, some things that I went through in my life. Um, and I really want to help people uh, recognize uh, some of those key things and to help them to uh, understand vulnerability and to let go of pride. And it's OK to ask for help and uh, how leadership works. Tell me more about Shot at Dawn Project. That's what you're working on. Yeah. Um, so this project is uh, with uh, my, my good buddy that I was actually in the Coast Guard with. I ran into, I uh, was in the Army with him for a little bit. We separated. Uh, he comes at me and he says, hey, man, I'm doing this thing. Uh, I just got some property. I got 40 acres. And uh, I'm, I've been working on this for about three years. And I look at it and I said, this is, this is pretty amazing. Uh, Shot of Dawn Project is basically, um, it's going to be a facility where uh, uh, veterans go in and they live in this designated area for a period of time, one to two years. Um, it, it seems kind of long, but in actuality, having a place to be on a consistent basis with continual care, with continual um uh, mentorship with continual things to do to grow, to help recover from, you know, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, you know, anxiety, depression, all of those. He's uh, going to have a living facility set up, um, treatment facility for recovery. Um, he's going to be doing uh, job, job, job addressing skills, uh, working on financing, education, uh, diet, exercising. Uh, he's got doctors on board. He's got psychologists on board. He's got, um, it's extensive yeah, <laughs> in a good way, though. No, it, it, it really is. Um, and uh, what it is, is it's it's like it's a tangible solution for kind of what's going on right now. Right now, what we have is the VA. The military doesn't really know what to do with people. So they they, they process them out. I'm a prime example of that. Um, the VA doesn't really know what to do with them because they don't have the time or the resources to really spend that quality time with these, these veterans. These why they medicate them. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, they're, honestly, they're kind of like kids. They're like pups, you know, like puppy dogs. You know, they, they got to have constant supervision because these dudes are messed up. And, you know, they've got to be able to talk about things and be vulnerable and um, understand things. And, and for me, I didn't even want to talk to anybody unless I knew that they could relate. And if you couldn't relate to me, you can't, you can't unknow what's going on. And honestly, you don't have to be a combat veteran to go through trauma and to be able to relate to me, but you just have to be able to relate on some level to understand what's going on. Otherwise there's no way I'm going to talk to you. And these guys think that taking pills is going to help, but it's just a gateway to other stuff. And it's, it's a mask. And it's obviously not working. Well, and that and that's the point. You know, so many veterans who don't want to talk. Um, you know, the message that you said before is clear, and that's you do talk to somebody. Find somebody who's a vet. There are plenty of veterans groups out there. Plenty of veterans organizations where you can go have a conversation with the buddy. And and if you are a veteran and you know somebody else, double check in on them. You know, everything okay? If you need ever need to talk, I'm here. You know, let let extend that hand. And I think that's something we talk about on the podcast a lot. Is that you know, we're all responsible for each other. And, and, and I've said it repeatedly. Uh, nobody knows how to take care of vets better than vets. It's the one thing that yeah. we know unequivocally. It's about the man next to us, the woman next to us, wherever it may be. It's about the person who we served with. And when push comes to shove, we do it better than anybody else out there. That's why there's so many organizations out there like yours. And I don't mean to say that in a negative way. I just there's so many people who runs veterans organizations run by veterans because they know 
at the core how to solve this problem. We just don't have the right people in the big power structure who know how to solve this problem. And that's that's unfortunate. No, and, and that, that is. And, and, you know, there are a lot of amazing facilities and organizations that go out and do things. But again, you know, it's that's that's a temporary solution. You know, they, they go and they, they do these hikes or they, they go skydiving or they go shooting and they go do stuff. But, you know, at the end of the weekend, they go back home. They, they don't get this stuff. They don't get this. They need to they need to have a re um, restructure baseline. They need to re redo their their foundation. Otherwise, they're going to go right back to what they're doing. They're going to go right back to that mindset. They're going to go right back to, you know, we're creatures of habit. That That's the way it works. And, you know, uh, for me, knowing now what I knew then um going through the special operations training, being with mission planning, working with the, just the most elite, best people in the world, um, just so much respect. But, you know, thinking back on it, those guys, they communicate so well and they work as a team and even SEAL teams, you know, the, the guys, the glorified guys that you hear about on, on TV and radio stations and, you know, all the guys that, you know, everyone wants to emulate and be those guys. Well, you know, it takes hard work. It takes communication and teamwork and they all work as a team and everyone, you know, checks on each other. And, you know, those guys are vulnerable and intimate you know, not in like a, a sexual manner. Intimacy has many different levels and meanings, right. but you know, it's, you know, they care for one another and the camaraderie and they're close and they work so well together because of that very specific fact. And if we can kind of take all those tangible things and use those and have a facility where we have a baseline and to regain their kind of composure on a, on a, on a steady long-term basis, more long-term basis, Plus, be able to do, you know, working out in the gym, getting healthy, learning how to take care of their finances. You know, a lot of guys, they lose stuff, you know, like me. I kind of lost everything. I didn't really have a place to live. I, I went through bankruptcy. I went through all that stuff, you know. Having something like this is so um, amazing. And it's not government run. It's not VA run. You know, something like this needs to be put out by, you know, us, Um individuals veterans and uh, corporations he's got gm involved he's got johnson and johnson he's got whole foods is going to be doing a dining facility um I mean, he's got he's got a lot of stuff going in on this and we're just really trying to work, raise awareness to you know get more of the word and get other you know key players in on you know kind of help help establishing this help understanding a, a lot of people don't really they can't grasp this because it really hasn't been done yet um but um, I think there's like one or two other facilities that are trying to do something similar to this. But, you know, it's it's more than just going out for the weekend and going on a camping trip. Our, our guys deserve a lot better. No, absolutely, Mike. And I mean, the words are perfectly said. And I hope the message rings loud and clear for all of our listeners. And, you know, your story is unique. And I'm so glad you got to tell it. And I'm so glad you were willing to share it with us. I know uh, you and I corresponding a little bit. It's been a long journey for you. But I'm glad you're in a place right now where, you know, you're still able to tell your story and that you're helping not only to improve the quality of your life, but the quality of other lives around you and, and other veterans around you. Absolutely. That, that, that's my goal. And that, that's kind of where um, I'm finding my life right now. And my piece is, uh, you know, being able to help people and talk to people, you know, coach, mentor, um, lead. Uh, we, we need more of it. And, uh, you know, it's just that's, that's what I want to do. And we need it so much. So I, I just 
got to start somewhere, and we know our dudes the best, right? Well, I'll leave you with a phrase you're well familiar with, Night Stalkers Don't Quit, and say, Mike Frazier, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Absolutely. Thank you. Night Stalkers Don't Quit. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Headlines and hot takes, they have their place. But at our podcast, ESPN Daily, we don't just skim the surface of sports. Dude, I mean, this clearly transcends blood feuds, (laughs) rivalries, sports. This is something far, far deeper than that. I'm your host, Pablo Torre. And every day, we try to dive into the stories behind the athletes. The picture of him in the dugout afterwards just looked like a guy who'd had his heart ripped out. Listen to ESPN Daily wherever you get your podcasts.